The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the fifth chapter and verse 36. The 36th verse in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. But I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. The whole of Christianity, as we must never forget, ultimately depends upon the one question as to who was Jesus of Nazareth. That is the central question, the central matter. Christianity is not primarily a teaching, or a philosophy. I go on saying this kind of thing because I have to say it. Because those who regard it as but a teaching or a philosophy go on saying the other. And, of course, because of the misunderstanding of the world, it is the kind of thing to which publicity is given. That's the sort of Christianity you find in the newspaper, that it's a teaching a philosophy primarily, an attitude towards various questions. Now, while, of course, I agree that uh, Christianity does have its teaching with respect to the whole of life, it is infinitely more important to indicate this, that before we begin to consider the Christian teaching with regard to anything, we must know what Christianity is and exactly what it means to be a Christian. That obviously is the first thing. And uh, this idea that it is nothing but a point of view or a teaching, one of such teachings amidst a number of competing teachings, is, I want to try to demonstrate once more, a complete and final misunderstanding of the New Testament teaching itself. The first question, therefore, I say is, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Who is he? What is he? Until we are clear about that, it's a waste of time to discuss or to consider anything else whatsoever. The big question before us is, who is he and what? was he doing in this world? Now, that is the question that stands out, surely, on the very surface of the four Gospels, and indeed in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and all the New Testament epistles. It's all about him. This is the great matter. And until we are clear, I say about him, we cannot of necessity 
be clear about anything else. He himself is more important than his teaching because, in a sense, his most important teaching is always about himself. So that the great question that stands before us once more is this. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Who is this person about whom we read in the pages of the New Testament? Well now then, that is the very question that is brought before us in this 36th verse of this 5th chapter of John's Gospel that we are looking at this evening. Indeed, those who attend here regularly will know that that is the one big question in the whole of the chapter. And you remember how the question arises, how it originally arose in this chapter. It all arose because of something our Lord did on a certain Sabbath day. He was up in Jerusalem and he went to the pool of Bethesda. He knew that there there was always congregated a large number of sick people, lame and halt, and blind and in various other conditions, and that they were there poor things because they believed, as everybody did, that the first person who got into that pool of Bethesda when its waters were stirred would be healed. So they gathered together in the hope that they might have the opportunity and might be the fortunate person. Well, you remember the story. Our Lord approaches a particular man who was sitting on his mat there and asked him the question. Asked him if he'd like to be made whole. And the man pointed out how hopeless it all was that he'd been like this now for 38 years and that he'd come there in the hope he might be the fortunate one but there was always somebody else. He hadn't got a servant to put him in, other people had, and there he was in his utter hopelessness. But our Lord, without doing anything about the pool of Bethesda, suddenly commands him to rise up and take up his pallet and walk. And the man did so. Now that, you see, led to trouble. The Jewish authorities were very upset by this. Not, of course, upset because a man had been healed, but because a man had been healed on the Sabbath which meant to them the breaking of the law. And therefore, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, they deduced, must be an evil person, because here he is breaking God's law, violating the Sabbath, doing this sort of thing on a Sabbath day. And they approach our Lord, and they argue with him about this, and the argument immediately becomes an argument about himself, about his person. Because he doesn't hesitate to turn to them and to say, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. And then they became furious. They said, Now, you've not only broken the law of the Sabbath, but you're blaspheming, you're claiming that you're equal with God. And he went on to tell them that he was. That his will was one with the Father. That he never did anything in and of himself. That all he was doing... God had showed him and God had told him to do and all he said had been spoken to him by God and God had commanded him to repeat it. He specifically claims that he is the Son of God. One in nature, one in mind, one in everything. And that God hath given him to have life in himself. Indeed, he says, God has appointed him to be judge of the world. 
And here they are listening to him and hating him and hating it all. He's been bearing witness to himself. But they won't accept it. Indeed, they reject it. And our Lord, understanding this, says to them, Well, I know if I bear witness of myself, you will say that my witness is not true. All right, he says, I'll accept it. Because there is another that beareth witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. That's a reference to God. He says, God has borne witness of me. How has God borne witness of him? He goes on to tell them. The first is, he says, you yourselves sent to John the Baptist, and he bear witness unto the truth. And they are done so. And we've been considering together how John the Baptist did bear witness unto him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He said, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh after me, the latchet of whose shoe I am unworthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into the garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. That's John's witness. But as he tells them, he was a burning and a shining light, John the Baptist. And you, he says, were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But then you turned against him. But wait a minute, he says, I haven't finished. I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, to complete, the same works that I am doing, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Now then, that's what I want to consider with you this evening. You see, he's talking still about himself. He won't let these people go. He says, I receive no testimony from men, but these things I say unto you, that you might be saved, in spite of their obduracy and their recalcitrance, in spite of their enmity and malice and spite, he goes on speaking to them. He's pleading with them. He says, you won't listen to me. You accepted for a while the testimony of John, then you turned your backs on it. Now listen, I haven't finished even yet. There's a further bit of testimony. There is further evidence. He pleads with them to listen. He says, look at these works that I'm doing. The testimony and the witness of his works and his action. And he says, this is stronger than the witness and the evidence of John. John spoke and bore his witness. Poor John, he got a bit confused later on in prison and became a bit uncertain and sent his messengers and now he's been put to death. Here's something greater, it goes on. You can see these things, the works, look at them. Face the facts and the evidence. Well, very well, that's the thing I say to which I want to call your attention tonight. These works of Christ, as they bear witness and their testimony and their evidence to him and to his person. What does he mean by talking about these works? Well, first and foremost, undoubtedly, he was referring to the miracles which he worked. But I don't take the view that it applies only to the miracles I think it includes everything that he did in the character of the Messiah. 
I believe it includes all his teaching, the words that the Father gave him as well as the works. I believe it includes all that he taught about his Father and the revelation he gave of his Father. I believe it included his sinless life, his honoring of the law. I believe it included his death upon the cross. His rising again. These are all part of his works. But primarily, I do think, and I agree with those who say so, that it refers to the miracle which he worked and which he performed. So what he's saying in a sense is this. Look at the evidence and the testimony of these miracles that I'm working. He's just worked one. This men whom they knew so well, who'd been ill for 38 years, but who suddenly is walking about the place and carrying his bed upon his back. Look at it, he says. Face the facts. And all these other miracles. His point is that these things proclaim plainly and clearly who he is. And this, I say, is the supreme matter for us this evening. Am I speaking to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God? Have you considered the evidence of the miracles? Look at the importance that is attached to them in the New Testament. He himself calls attention to them. He does so here. He does so in the tenth chapter, which we read together at the beginning. Did you notice it? Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And this is what he said. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you wouldn't believe. But he said, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Why don't you believe them? And then later on in the same chapter he says, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, if you don't believe what I say, believe that the Father, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And you know later on, you'll find in the 14th chapter, he says exactly the same thing again. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works now there he is, pointing directly to the evidence of the miracles which he was working before their eyes. And then you remember there is that other notable illustration of the same thing, a very exceptional one, and that's why I single it out. The reply he gave when John the Baptist did send his two disciples on that occasion with the question, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Poor John languishing in the prison, his poor body in a bad state, suffering from depression. He sends his messengers, are you the coming Messiah? I thought you were. Are you really? Or must we begin to look for somebody else? Tell us. And this was the reply he sent back, you remember, with John, with the, the disciples to John. He said, go back and tell John again the things that ye do see and hear. What are they? 
the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and unto the poor the gospel is preached. Go back and tell him that. Put before him the evidence of the miracles that I am working and performing and that are to be seen of all men. Now that is our Lord's own use of the miracle. And as you know, this gospel according to John always uses the term signs with respect to these miracles. You remember that he worked that miracle in Cana of Galilee of turning water into wine and John says this first sign did he perform. And all the other miracles John refers to as signs. Now there is our Lord's own use of it. But you see the apostles made precisely the same use of these miracles. Let me give you an illustration or two. Look at the Apostle Peter preaching the first sermon that in a sense was ever preached under the auspices of the Christian church. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. This is the kind of thing he said. He said, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have crucified, etc. But you notice, he holds before them the miracles which they themselves had seen. Not only does Peter do it there, he does it when again he preaches in the house of Cornelius. You'll find that in the 10th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostle, in verses 38 and 39, he says, I'm telling you this, the word I say you know, which was published throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Now that was the essence of the apostolic preaching. That is what they all preached, not only Peter, but Paul and all the others. Indeed, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, for me to give you my final bit of evidence, puts this perfectly plainly in his second chapter when he puts it like this. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was afterward confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will. In other words, for me to sum up this bit of evidence, all the reports which we are given of his miracles in the pages of the four Gospels are really designed to that one end, there to show us and to prove to us who he was, that he is indeed the Son of God, the long-expected Messiah. It is a part of the case of Christianity in order to establish and proclaim who he is and why he has come. Very well, then.
There is the evidence that confronts us this evening. And I want to use it in this way. I want to ask a question. What have you, my friend, made of that evidence? Do you believe it? Have you accepted it? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God? Do you really believe that this tremendous, staggering thing has literally and actually taken place? That at that given point of time, the only begotten Son of God came out of heaven and came into this world, was born as a babe in Bethlehem, grew up, lived as a man, worked as a carpenter, at the age of 30 began to preach and went about doing the things that are recorded in the pages of the four Gospels. Do you believe that that was the Son of God? Is it to you the biggest thing and the biggest fact in your life and in the whole of history tonight that God has sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law? Is your whole life depending upon that? Now that's the question. Because if it isn't, According to this book, you're lost. He says, these things I say that you might be saved. Is this the thing you believe? If you don't believe it, have you considered this evidence? Have you considered the evidence of his works? The evidence of his miracles? But dear me, says someone, wait a moment, are you holding a thing like that before us? Are you forgetting, says someone, that you're living in the 20th century? Are you really going to base the case for Christianity still upon the fact of miracles? Surely, says this man, this has been one of the greatest difficulties about Christianity. No man who is really up to date can possibly believe in miracles. Now, wait a minute. Let me take up this question. I'm bound to do so. I'm driven to do so because of the prominence which our Lord himself gives them. He puts them in the forefront. He says, here is greater evidence than that of John. He says, if you don't believe my words, believe the works. Very well then, let's start like this. What is a miracle? A miracle, by definition, is an effect which is produced above or beside the ordinary course of nature. It is uh, an effect which is produced apart from the operation of those secondary causes by which God is pleased in the ordinary course of providence to govern the physical world. Let me explain what I mean by that. Normally God runs this universe by means of what we call secondary causes. Or if you like what we call the laws of nature. Cause and effect. Something happens and it leads to something else. Now that is how God normally runs this world. That is the ordinary course of providence. What's a miracle? Well, a miracle is God operating apart from those secondary causes, apart from those ordinary laws. It doesn't mean that he's breaking his laws. It means that for the time being, he is acting above them. It means and implies and presupposes an extraordinary interposition of God's divine power. That is what is meant by a miracle. Normally, our diseases are healed by certain processes that go on in the body. You suddenly get an infection into your system. What happens? 
Well, God's ordinary way of dealing with that is that he stimulates certain forces in the body called antibodies. The white cells are mobilized. The blood rushes the white cells to the seat of infection. These antibodies are produced and circulate in the blood. That's how it normally happens, secondary causes. But God can act immediately and directly. Not through secondary causes or agencies, but immediately, directly. And when he does that, it's a miracle. The secondary causes take time. Healing is a comparatively slow process. But God can heal in a moment. That's a miracle. And if it isn't immediate, if it isn't absolute, if it isn't complete, it isn't a miracle. But that's what is meant by a miracle, such as the miracles which our Lord worked. Here's a man who has been crippled for 38 years. Well, of course, a crippled man can be healed by medical science, but it'll probably take a long time. He'll have to have massage and electrical treatment, physiotherapy, and he gets a little bit better. Of course, his muscles have become atrophied, and you can't suddenly make him stand up and walk. But our Lord looked at this man who hadn't walked for 38 years, and he just said to him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk, and he did so immediately. That's a miracle. It means that there is this divine power operating. Not secondary causes any longer, but this immediacy. God acting above the ordinary manner and doing a thing in all the might of his eternal power. That's what we mean by a miracle. But now, of course, you'll realize at once that there's a great deal of confusion about miracles, and I just want to look at two or three of the confusions. Here's one. There are some people who are too ready to, to, to call a thing a miracle. I start with them. There are people who say, at the slightest provocation, it's a miracle, when it isn't a miracle. If you can explain a thing by natural causes, do so. A miracle is not usual, it's not ordinary, it's most extraordinary. Don't invoke the miraculous unless it's absolutely essential. A thing may appear very wonderful to you, but if there is another explanation, well, give the other explanation. I've seen many people who've told me that they've had miracles worked upon them. I've not been satisfied. I could explain everything that's happened to them by other means and methods. It may be very remarkable, yes, but remarkable things can happen. The influence of mind over matter is quite extraordinary. And you see, we sometimes think we are much worse than we are. And suddenly we are put right by a psychological shock. You've read of people, perhaps, men who in the first war suddenly became blind because a shell exploded near them. You've read of such cases, haven't you? And then many years later, something exciting was happening in the company where they were sitting and suddenly their eyesight came back. That's not a miracle. That can easily be explained. There are these temporary conditions from which we suffer, which are put right by certain natural shocks. Don't call things like that miracles. We have a natural explanation for them. So let's get rid of that difficulty. It is as great a disservice to the Christian message to claim that things are miracles when they're not, as the second difficulty, which is to deny the possibility of miracles altogether. Now, you're familiar with this. There are people who say miracles are impossible. Matthew Arnold said it a hundred years ago. He said miracles have never happened. 
because miracles cannot happen. And there it was. There was no more to be said. Matthew Arnold had spoken. Miracles haven't happened because miracles cannot happen. But that's begging the question. The question is, cannot they happen? Is it impossible for a miracle to take place? Why did Matthew Arnold say that? Well, Matthew Arnold said that, of course, because he lived when he lived, a hundred years ago. You know, anybody who says that sort of thing now is very much behind the time. Did you know that? Well, Matthew Arnold said that, of course, because he lived when he lived hundred years ago. You know, anybody who says that sort of thing now is very much behind the time. Did you know that? If you say now that miracles cannot happen for the reason that Matthew Arnold said it, you're just showing that you're not up to date in your scientific reading. Why did he say that and everybody who said it with him in the last century? Well, they said it because of their view of matter. Matter, they said, is an inert substance. The atom was indivisible. But it was purely material. Their conception of matter was purely material. Their conception of things physical was material. And therefore they deduced that a miracle could not happen. But you see, they said that sort of thing because they didn't know anything about nuclear physics because they didn't know anything about the nature and the constitution of the atom. What is an atom? Is it inert matter? No, we are told today it's brimful of life. It's this terrific energy. It's vital. You mustn't talk about inert matter. Dead matter. No, no. Everything, even elements, even iron and things like that, they're alive. It's this tremendous power. It's full of life and of vast energy which opens out, of course, these tremendous possibilities for us, for future means of heating and so on. Just the water that's in the sea, just a little of it can heat the whole world, as it were. You've been reading about Zeta and all these things. That's the new idea. And the moment you accept these new ideas, you must no longer say that miracles cannot happen. If you go on talking like that, you just show that you're still living in the 19th century instead of the 20th. With this new understanding, even in a scientific sense, we see how easily these miracles can happen because of the nature of life and all that God has made. The God who has made all these things, oh, he just has to influence them and you see everything taking a different form and being changed. And that's a miracle. So, my dear friend, if you think that you can avoid and evade Jesus of Nazareth because you say you can't believe in miracles, and oh, how many have said that and have gone to their graves saying it, imagining that they've been very clever. They say, now, if, if, they, if these claims for miracles were not made, I could have believed in him, but I've got to swallow the miracles and all, and as a scientific man, I cannot. Oh, the tragedy, I say, of such men, that they were bound 
by the little bit of scientific knowledge of their own day and generation, which has now been exploded and which has gone and is utterly outmoded. You can no longer hide behind that. But here is another objection, another difficulty. The case of these very Jews to whom our Lord was speaking. And there are so many like this, they just won't face the evidence at all. Though these things happened before them, they won't look at them. And I'm sorry to have to say this has been true of the Christian church as a whole for the last hundred years. The Christian church has been saying, now we've got to remember we're living in an educated, enlightened, scientific age. And if we go on talking about miracles, people won't listen to us and won't believe the gospel. So they've said nothing about miracles. Or they've been trying to explain them away. Have you heard their explanation of the feeding of the 5,000? This is the sort of thing they've been saying to try and explain it away. That the boy produced the loaves and the fishes and that the others, seeing the readiness of the boy to give his loaves and fishes, they all brought out their snacks from their pockets so they were all able to eat. Isn't it pathetic? Isn't it childish? that the Christian church in our fear of some supposed scientific knowledge should have been denying the faith. My dear friends, if these miracles are not true, there's nothing true here. They're a part of the testimony. They're a part of the apostolic preaching. They went round and preached that Jesus would work miracles. They said, you saw them. Why didn't you believe him? You saw the evidence. Why didn't you accept it? And it is still a part of the preaching of this gospel. Why do you believe in Jesus at all? You who say that you believe in Jesus without miracles. What do you know about Jesus of Nazareth? Why do you believe in him in any sense? Well, you've got to answer that it's because of what you read about him in the four gospels. You know nothing about him apart from what you find here. And if you are dependent upon these Gospels for your knowledge of him, how can you honestly say that you'll accept some of it and reject the rest? It's all here. Jesus as he is the teacher and the miracle worker. The works, he says. Look at them and believe them and accept them. If you don't do that, what you're really doing is this, is you're setting yourself up as an authority. And you say, what I choose to believe is right, what I choose... To reject is wrong. Tell me, are you prepared to face eternity on that? Do you think your opinion or the opinion of any man is sufficient for you to stand on as you die and go on and meet God? Can't you see that it's unutterable folly? You either take these Gospels as they are or you reject them in total. You have no Jesus of Nazareth apart from the miracle worker. The works that he talks about, you've got to face them. Ah, oh, let me come then to the last attitude, the right attitude towards these things. Here is the right attitude towards the miracles. The attitude of Nicodemus, who went to him by night and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, thou must be a teacher sent from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. You know it was a tremendous thing for that man who was a Pharisee and one of the greatest of them, one of the teachers of Israel. 
It was no small thing for that man to risk his reputation and to go in the night to have an interview with this carpenter from Nazareth. Why did he do it? He did it because he was an honest man. He'd seen the miracles. And he said, I've come to you because, though I don't understand you and your claims and what you're saying, I know this much. You must be a teacher come from God. For no man can do the miracles that thou doest. Except God be with him. You don't understand Nicodemus unless you accept the evidence of the miracles. That's the right attitude. But come, let me give you further evidence in the 7th chapter, the 31st verse, where we read this. Many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? That's an argument. They said, we've got to face the facts, and here they are. But take the other famous case, the brilliant argumentation of the men, the blind men of the ninth chapter. The man was healed, you remember, by our Lord. A man who had been born blind, and yet our Lord in a moment healed him. And the Jewish authorities come again, and they almost try to persuade the men that he's still blind, because they didn't like this, the way it had been done, and so on. And you remember, they said to him, look here, give God the glory. This fellow we know not from whence he is. But the man answered and said, Why, herein is a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshipper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. That's an unanswerable argument. And then did you remember that statement at the end of that 10th chapter of John's Gospel? Our Lord went back to the place where John had been baptizing at the beginning and many resorted to him and said, John, they said, did no miracle because John the Baptist had never worked a miracle. They said, John, and we believe John, they said, and we like John and we followed John. But this man... This man's different. John did no miracle. But all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. The evidence of the miracles, you see. Well, now then, there are the facts. The miracles are facts. How do they tell us anything about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, they do it like this. They are first and foremost a fulfillment of prophecy. Go back and read your Old Testament prophets and you'll find that they say this, that when this great Messiah, this Deliverer comes, he will authenticate himself by working miracles. Read the 35th chapter of Isaiah's Gospel and there you'll find they talk about the blind seeing and the lame walking and leaping. The Messiah is going to do this. That's what our Lord meant, you see. In the reply he sent back to John the Baptist, he said, Go back and tell John again the things that you have seen and heard. Tell him that I'm doing these things, the very things the prophets said the Messiah, the coming one, was going to do. Go and tell him that you've seen them happening. It is a fulfillment of prophecy. But not only that, their own inherent testimony was surely enough in and of itself. 
Look at the number of the miracles he worked. Look at their character. He can still the waves and silence. The howling gale. He can cleanse a leper. He can make the deaf hear. He can raise the dead. He's the master of the universe. And he does it in his own name. Some men in the Old Testament had been given power to work miracles, but they did it in the name of God and not in their own name. The apostles were given power, but they did it in the name of Jesus. Do you remember Peter and John with the men at the gate of the temple? They said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, not in their own name. But here is one who does it in his own name. He's only a carpenter. He's a common man. But without invoking the name of God, he speaks, he commands, and it was done, it happened. Who is this? That's the question. I've argued all this out with you this evening, not because I enjoy having an argument about miracles. Oh, there are many who've wasted a lifetime arguing. God knows I've done it myself. It's a very interesting question. You believe in miracles. And so you have a wonderful argument about miracles. And you end in just arguing about miracles. And you've been clever and you've brought out your learning and you've talked about science. God forbid that anybody should go away from here thinking that I've just been interested in having an argument about miracles. I'm only interested in these miracles for one reason. And that is the reason that he gave himself. Do you see through these miracles that this is the Son of God? Do you see that this is the only begotten Son of God? He worked his miracles in order to call attention to himself and to who he was. If we don't see this, nothing is of value to us at all. This is the value and the purpose of the miracle. To bring us to see that Jesus of Nazareth was the only begotten Son of God. That this is no mere man, that this is God-man. God in the flesh. The Word of God made flesh and dwelling among us. But why am I interested in that? I'm interested in that for this reason. If this is the Son of God who has been in this world, what was he doing in it? Why did he ever come? Has he just come to give us a display of God? No, no, he tells us. He has come to complete the works which the Father has given him to do. And if you read his great prayer at the end of his life, which is recorded in the 17th chapter of this gospel, this is what you'll find him saying, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What was that work? I have already told you. The work that the Father sent him into this world to do was the work of salvation. The Son of Man is come to seek 
and to save that which is lost. Why did the Son of God come into this world? He came because the whole world was lost. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. Because the whole world lieth guilty before God. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because the human race has fallen in Adam and is under the wrath of God and is going to hell. He came because of that. He came to save. He alone could save. No man could save himself. No man can undo his past. No man can keep God's law. No man can satisfy God in and of himself. The Son of God came to save. That's the work that God gave him. He gave him his people to save. And he's come to save them. And how does he save them? He saves them by honoring God's law on their behalf. Oh, that wasn't enough. He came to bear their sins and their guilt in his own body. God, being just and holy, must forgive sin. He said he must. He said he would. And the punishment of sin is death and separation out of God's sight. So before the Son of God can save, he must bear our sins and bear the guilt and the punishment. And he did so. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes we are healed. I'm not interested in arguing about miracles. I've gone through all this that you might see this. That the Son of God came into the world to die for you and for your sins. Because it's the only way whereby you can be forgiven. Be reconciled to God and become his child. And escape hell and go to heaven. It's not a theoretical question. It's not an, not an academic matter. Your whole eternal future depends upon this. The evidence of the works, he says, it's greater than the evidence of John. Believe it. Accept it. And so I ask you as I leave you. Have you believed the evidence? Do you stumble at the fact that God, when he was here in the flesh, worked miracles? For myself, I'd be very surprised if he didn't do so. When this amazing thing happens, don't you expect something unusual that's going to call attention to it? And here it is. Do you mean to tell me that the great God, the Lord of the universe, who created the laws of nature and who has implanted the operation of the secondary causes in the cosmos, are you asking me to believe that God is tied in by his own laws? That the maker is smaller than the thing he's made? That he cannot act apart from them if he doesn't choose to do so? That's what you're asking me to believe if you ask me not to believe in the possibility of miracles. And I cannot. I cannot be so foolish. I cannot be so unscientific. I believe in a God who's made everything and who can do anything he likes. He normally chooses to work in the secondary way. 
that when he sends his only begotten Son into the world, he wants the world to know that he's done so. So our Lord worked the miracle and said, if you don't believe what I'm saying, believe the works. And that not simply that you and I should say, we believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. No, no. But that we should go on and see this. That Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, was in the world. Because it was the only way whereby even God could save us. Without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. He died for us. He died for our sins. His body was broken. His blood was shed. That you and I might be reconciled to God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That Jesus is the Son of God? And that he died in order to taste death for you? If you do, I pronounce to you that you are forgiven. That you are saved. That your sins are blotted out. That you are a child of God. But if you don't, I tell you this evening that at the day of judgment, his miracles will rise up against you and will leave you utterly speechless. His person has been attested beyond any doubt or question. If you don't believe in him, it is because you won't face the facts. It's because you're like these Jews, so prejudiced with your little opinions that you won't look at facts that are declaring him to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Learn the lesson of these foolish Jews and fall down at his feet and say, yes, I believe. Jesus, Son of God, my Lord, my God, the Savior of my soul.